Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Amir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour for making this show economically viable. They are Brazil Resources, uh, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacor Gold Mines, Golden Arrow Resources Corporation, Miranda Gold, Renaissance Gold, and Precipitate Gold. Uh, I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time uh, today Simon Mikhailovich. Uh, he's the co-managing member of Idesis Capital. It's here in New York City. Um, Simon is, as I mentioned, a co-managing member of that firm. Uh, he's responsible for developing uh, the macroeconomic outlook and certainly one, what we want to talk to him about today. Uh, very, very confusing time for many people uh, in those who believe in free markets, and um, it, it's a lot of a lot of issues here that we want to talk to him about. But he's been involved in identifying opportunistic uh, strategies, uh, developing products uh, to uh, that work in these kind of markets. And um, he was also co-founded. He also co-founded the firm uh, with Michael Salat. I guess uh, he's your partner there. In 1998, is yep. when the firm was was set up. Uh, it's really good to have you. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much, Jay. Very happy to be here. Yeah, you uh, in Barron's in Barron's interview. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. If I just was reading it in preparation for today's discussion, but uh, I read that you came to America with a mere one hundred dollars in your pocket. Can you can you tell our listeners a little bit about why you came to America back then, and and did you know some people here that helped you get started, or, or how did it work? Sure, uh, I, I uh, grew up in the Soviet Union uh, in Saint Petersburg, and uh, when I was uh, 19, uh, my family decided to uh, to emigrate. I mean, for obvious reasons, living in the Soviet Union was not very nice. Uh, but when we decided to immigrate, uh, the only amount of money that we were allowed to uh, take with us was a hundred dollars a person uh, in a suitcase. Everything else was more or less uh, expropriated through exit taxes, visas, and visa fees, and uh, other types of things. Hmm. And to the extent people had anything left after that, then they could, you know, they could give it to their relatives who were left behind. Wow. So we left in uh, 1978 uh, with, I guess it was five of us: my grandparents and my parents and myself, uh, with $500 and five suitcases, and that was that. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, did, so. Uh, we had a clean start, as they say. Did you know anybody in America? Did your family know anybody? We did not know anybody. We ended up in Baltimore, um, and I ended up working my way through Johns Hopkins University at night, uh, and then uh, through uh, business school also at night. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, But before I got to business school, I eventually got a job at uh, an insurance company in Maryland, which was called the uh, United States Fidelity and Guarantee Company in the in the investment area of that firm. And uh, was there for 13 years until uh, I started uh, my business with my partner, uh, specifically around uh, structured uh, credit, CDOs, which we know what happened with those. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess uh, 
the combination of uh, my experiences as a young person leaving, leaving um, you know, a repressive society and ending up here in the United States, starting from scratch. And then uh, for the past 15 years, uh, being focused on uh, distressed investing mostly in uh, various complicated structured credit securities, mortgages, CDOs, um, an understanding that technology from, uh, you know, from the distress side, meaning uh, not going where everybody goes to pay 100 cents on the dollar, but realizing how uh, damaging potentially these instruments were and how flawed they were, but then trying to profit from uh, distress when distress occurred, mm-hmm. uh, is, what in, is what forms a foundation for our views and for the opportunities we see uh, in the markets today and the risks that we see in the markets today. Well, speaking of repressive societies, I want to talk to you, of course, about the risks and the macroeconomic picture and how you can protect yourselves given what it is. I mean, I'm sure uh, that you weren't looking to profit from misery, but you were looking, obviously, uh, you know, to, to uh, protect yourself. And, and a lot of people think that those of us who are into gold just want to cheer and uh, and hope for uh, for a demise in our economy so we can make money in gold. Nothing could be further from the truth for, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure the same is true of you. But if you recognize the markets and how their malinvestment occurs and how intervention in the markets uh, uh, destroy markets, then you can you know, look at that and, and try to profit from it, right? No, absolutely. Uh, profit from it, uh, you know, the second objective and the first objective is to protect what you have. Sure. And I think every one of us owes to ourselves and to our families and, uh, you know, the generations after us is to do the best we can for uh, for our loved ones exactly. and for ourselves and for our retirement uh, to not become victims of this. Exactly but, right. Well, yeah, we had, I, think I just want to... It's important for, for people to understand how we ended up here. Uh, because without understanding A, where we are, and B, how did we get here, it's hard to understand where things are going or where things may go and the level of risks and the types of risks that one has to think about. Um, you know, I'm not a gold bug, and I've never been focused on gold up until, let's say, maybe 2007 when I personally started investing in it. But to me, that came as a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what I saw as the risks and the potential problems as opposed to uh, a personal interest that then I decided, therefore, everybody should own it. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, we want to get get into that a little bit more, but I just want to press you on one other issue here. We had on this show another fellow Russian uh, citizen, Dmitry Orlov, Mm-hmm. Um, who's written a book, uh, and I can't recall exactly the name of the book right now, but it, the basic thesis was that he saw a lot of the parallels um, in, that he saw in the Soviet Union taking place here, uh, and he was very concerned that, you know, that things are you know, moving in a socialist direction. In fact, well, the capitalism is being destroyed and that we are uh, heading towards some real, real problems in this country. Would you share that view? Uh, just... To make it clear, I'm not a Russian citizen, and when I left in 1978, I had to pay for to lose the citizenship. Okay. I was stateless for six years until I was fortunate to acquire American citizenship. Okay. So okay. <laughs> I I uh, have never worked in the Soviet Union. I was a young uh, kid, young man, uh, young man when we left, uh, and so I'm I consider myself mostly I mean not mostly I, you know culturally. Uh, as far as literature is concerned, I, I, I'm bicultural, but uh, in every other sense, I'm American. But uh, yes, unfortunately, uh, I see uh, this is what made me uncomfortable and, and focusing on things like gold and uh, and strategies and uh, that uh, you know could protect one not only from what may happen in the market, but what type of uh, actions governments may take. Now, I'm very concerned. I mean, I've seen a lot of things when I came to this country. It's, and, it's, and what I'm about to say is not a political statement. I'm just mm-hmm. uh, seeing patterns that I've seen before and I don't like. Mm-hmm. When I came to this country, you know, 35 years ago or whatever, uh, you know, you could uh, travel freely. You could uh, go into a hotel. You didn't have to prove your credentials. You can go to a doctor and you didn't have to show your picture ID. Uh, one thing in the Soviet Union that was always uh, part of your life once you turned 16 was uh, internal passport, mm-hmm. which is a picture ID. Uh, you couldn't do anything without it. I mean, you couldn't buy tickets anywhere. You couldn't uh, open bank accounts. I mean, you couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, when I came to this country, I mean, when I came to the United States, I mean, the first huge impression that we all um, felt, my, my parents and I, is that how completely uh, free the society was. 
Right. Where you could, you, you know, you had your privacy, you had your, uh, you didn't have to report, you didn't have to present papers, please, uh, yeah. at every turn. And now that I travel and I go through, uh, through the airports and the humiliation that that entails, and of course having to show your identification everywhere you go these days, um, it's worrisome. I mean, it's, it's, I don't like this. I mean, yeah. it looks a little familiar to me. Then, of course, when you look at the economic policies and when you look at what's going on, or what happened, for example, with General Motors bankruptcy and, and Chrysler bankruptcy, where uh, one of the things that made this country great was the inviolable property rights, mm-hmm. where when people, investors, invested their money, they knew what the law was and how the law would treat uh the piece of paper that they purchased based on the, let's say, in the case of bankruptcy, based on the order of priority of payments. Uh, and when we had a crisis and all of a sudden uh, things that I took for granted and, uh, you know, types of things that I never thought would ever uh, government would get involved in, all of a sudden uh, government uh, started telling people uh, where they would stand in the order of priority and what kind of payment they needed to take in exchange for their bonds, well, that's that's not very American. No, indeed, uh, it, it seems to me uh, it, it seems to me that what we're talking about here uh, is the rule of law being defiled, and in fact, a sort of a mentality that seems to go with dictatorships, and that is that the ends justifies the means, right? Exactly, exactly. I think that is a critical point. I mean, this country, the way this country um, became what it became. Uh, it got as wealthy and as prominent as it did, is by fairly straightforward principles that sound very simple, but in most of the worlds have never been observed. Mm-hmm. And that is that there's a there are property rights and there are very clear laws. Now, I'm not saying I'm not idealizing the United States. There's always been graft. There's always been corruption. Sure. But as you compare whatever has always happened in the United States to other countries, if it was pervasive elsewhere, it was on the fringes here. Mm-hmm. The fact that it existed, it doesn't mean it drove the whole system all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, if you made a bet, if you took a risk and you won, then you profited from the fruits of the risk that you took. If you took a risk and you lost, then you have to lick your wounds. And the great thing about America is that anybody can uh, fail and then come back. Right. This that is has- a country of second chances. And that is what makes us different from Europe. I mean, failure has never been... Uh, a claim of shame, I mean, a uh, stamp of shame right. on anybody's uh, forehead. You could fail, and people would respect that, and, pe- and, and frankly, most uh, successful entrepreneurs have failed several times uh, before succeeding. But when you get into a situation where people who fail uh, get bailed out, uh, and people who do wrong things do not get prosecuted because it is not socially advisable for various reasons, as determined by uh, the prosecuting authorities, and when the government tells people, you know, what the contracts, that the contracts that they entered into are potentially, it's not socially advisable to stick to those contracts, this is where you get into very serious problems. And these are unintended consequences that I think have very far-reaching ramifications. It's, it's, the, it's the proverbial slippery slope. And it seems to be, though, that uh, it, it's, uh, what you're talking about is, is common among people from Eastern Europe that I've talked to. Uh, they seem to recognize the pathology that's creeping into our body politic more than Americans do. I think it's been a slow process. You know, they some people compare it to the frog cooking slowly in the water. You turn the water up slowly, and the frog will just sit there and get cooked to death. If you uh, put a frog into a boiling water, then he'll jump out. And it seems to me that, you know, if, if all of a sudden we had woken up one day and we saw, you know, Soviet tanks or U.S. tanks in our streets and all of these different things that you're describing now, though, that seem less pernicious than that, that we would, if it happened all of a sudden, we'd be, in a, we'd be alarmed. But the fact that now we can go into an airport and they can, they can literally x-ray all our body, our body parts, uh, and put it on a film is, is pretty remarkable. Well, let's get into, the, these, are, these are issues, I think, ultimate issues that you and I and, and those who love liberty are concerned about, but it's the attachment of this kind of personal freedom to, to money and to the rule of law, that, you know, or the, the absence of the rule of law, which is eroding that freedom. But I think one of the biggest, uh, one of the, you know, property rights, you talk about the right to property. Well, it seems to me one of the most pernicious uh, violations of that right is the currency situation, which allows endless amounts of money to be created out of thin air, which uh, essentially 
dilutes our property, our value, because uh, you know our, our currency is becoming worth less. Would you agree? Well, not only yes, uh, and furthermore, I think it's deeply immoral. Mm-hmm. It is deeply immoral because, to repeat one more time, the way this country became great is by doing the right thing, which is saving your money, not spending more than you have, uh, you know, funding education for your children uh, so that they can be so that they can do better than you, and the entire capitalist system is based on the word capital. Yep. Capital is a product of blood, sweat, and tears uh, that is deferred consumption, where people choose to not spend the money or blow the money today uh, for the benefit in the future. Um, and this is how uh, countries grow, and this is how economies develop through investment. And investment is derived from savings. So if the government is uh, essentially perverting the value of savings and creating incentives where people who are hardworking people living within their means or below their means and deferring the instant gratification for the benefit of, of future, um, you know, uh, whether it's a retirement or some sort of deferred purchase later on, uh, those are the people that are being destroyed by these policies. Right. Uh, and people who, and what is being rewarded? Well, what is being rewarded is borrowing more money than you can pay back. Right. It's exactly the opposite of what, what made this country great, in my view, for sure. And David Stockman, uh, we actually aired a, uh, a speech that he had given to the Mises Circle here in New York City. Uh, David said, uh, it, this was the day after Bernanke announced uh, quantitative easing infinite back uh, in September, I believe it was. And uh, David said that we are destroying, we are in the process of destroying capitalism from inside out by destroying the markets. You'd agree with that, I suppose. I would agree with that, and I say, in fact, I think the word capitalism is is a uh, misnomer to what we have here. What we have here is creditism, uh-huh. from the word credit. Uh-huh. Uh, we have substituted capital for debt. Uh, for we have substituted instead of capital, we have debt. Right. And there's a confusion of that, Simon, because, you know, I hear uh, Thomas Keene on, on Bloomberg, for example, talking about how the banks are capitalized up now. Well, that's a bunch of baloney. They, they stole money. It was stolen and given to them from the public, right, or through the printing press. Well, yeah, they were, they were this, is, this is everything I said before. They, they, uh, they uh, rolled a big dice. They lost, and instead of uh, and instead of taking the punishment and taking the consequences of their losses, the bankers, their shareholders, and their bondholders, uh, they were rewarded. They walked away with bonuses. Uh, I feel very strongly that this is both immoral and illegal. Well, outright illegal, and the government, uh, for whatever reason, has deemed uh, it uh, not feasible to prosecute. I will tell you more. Recently, just very recently, in the last several weeks, I'm sure you read that uh, uh, HSBC. Uh, had to pay a very large fine for a crime that was no less than laundering money and funding terrorism. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the reason the uh, uh, the Justice Department gave for not instituting any criminal action against any particular individual was that that would bankrupt the bank, which would not be in the interest of systemic stability. I'll be darned. I mean, talk about the end justifies the means. Uh, How yeah. can a bank commit money laundering and terrorist funding right. without any banker breaking any law and being charged with this law? So you right. talk about lack of rule of law. I mean, and the end justifies the means. I don't know what, what's a more clear and more recent example of that. Well, I just wish Americans would wake up and hear that and understand that and get angry as hell and start, uh, and start to complaining about it because until we do... Uh, this kind of nonsense will go on and on because I believe the people you're talking about are the ones that are behind the Federal Reserve and basically want to, you know, control us and reallocate wealth from, uh, from those that create it to themselves. But I, I really thank you for that uh, creditism. I think that's a good word. We had uh, Gene Epstein, who's a constant, a frequent guest on this show, a Barron's writer, ta- calls it crony capitalism. Not, that, is, that too. <laughs> it, it, it is crapital. It is crap is what it is. It's, it's very, very bad stuff. So anyway, uh, all right. So but let's try to look on the bright side of things, at least as you say. Let's, you know, as John Hathaway of the Tocqueville Fund, I think, understands as well as anybody what's going on here. And John's view is, okay, this is the way the world is now. Uh, maybe we can't change it, but we've got to do what we can to try to, as you said, protect our families and our wealth and so forth. So talk to us a little bit about your firm, um, I, I, Itis, Itis, uh, I am I pronoun- 
Idesis, it rhymes with thesis. Idesis rhymes with thesis. Yeah. Okay, so the, the firm and it's and it's uh, it's value. It's very, what is it about? What are what are you trying to do with Idesis? Sure. I mean, for the last 15 years, we've been uh, focused, as I said, on structured credit and understanding the financial system and, uh, you know, doing various uh, hedge fund strategies uh, with distressed uh, mortgages and distressed CDOs uh, and credit default swaps. And by 2011, I mean, our latest fund um, uh, sort of uh, was sitting on significant gains uh, from 2009. And so we decided, we looked around, and we decided that uh, we've had enough of, of managed markets, that we would like to harvest these gains, uh, settle off with our partners, and uh, uh, exit stage left uh, from the financial markets because our money was at stake as well, and we just uh, stopped believing in the fairness uh, of the system and in the fundamental uh, underpinnings uh, behind the prices in these markets. And now, are we, did we do it uh, two, uh, two years too early or a year too early? I don't know, but I've been in this business 27 years, and I know that there's such thing as selling early, but there's, uh, you know, there's no such thing as selling just on time. It's usually you're either early or you're late. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we decided uh, to, uh, to be early, and uh, the important thing about uh, wealth preservation, which is not a one-year project or a two-year project, for most, of us, for most of us, and when I say wealth preservation, I'm just talking about savings. Sure. Uh, you know, it's a lifelong project. So it's not uh, it's not really about how much money you're going to make this year or that year. It's about how much money you're going to make and keep mm-hmm. over a very extended period of time. So having terrific returns for a few years and then giving it all back and then some is not really what how you no. uh, you know preserve it over time. So we exited uh, this business and uh, uh, decided that given uh, the views, some of the views I'm sharing with you today. We, unfortunately, we could afford to do it after 15 years of uh, being successful. Uh, we decided to reposition ourselves and uh, uh, look at hard assets uh, and assets outside the financial system. And the, re- the reason, the way sort of uh, intellectually we got to that is we, po- is we said, we don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is this, that the financial system is more interconnected today than mm-hmm. it has ever been. It is more complex today than it has ever been. A lot of the technologies that enabled this debt creation of heretofore unseen proportions um, are totally misunderstood by people. People, because it's very complicated, and so most people don't have direct understanding of what types of leverage and hidden assets these things enable, uh, these technologies enable. And to be very, to simply explain what I'm saying is this. Whenever there's a breakthrough technology, for example, you know, I don't know, digital photography or whatever, what that typically means, they call these disruptive technologies. What it means is that the marginal cost of production for some particular good declines precipitously. All of a sudden, it's possible to produce a lot of something that used to cost a lot more to produce. And in that type of breakthrough, like television sets became incredibly cheaper, plasma TVs, for example. That's a breakthrough technology. They went from unaffordable to ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. Um, what typically happens is that tremendous competition arises, and there's an overproduction of this good. And you end up with excess inventory, which then gets liquidated uh, at some discount. Somebody loses some money, and things kind of the market regulates itself and settles down. So what happened in this credit boom is that credit got overproduced because of CDOs, because of securitization, roughly speaking. Mm-hmm. Securitization enabled break breakdown between the quality of the loan and the controls that normally uh, were uh, controlling the how much money was could be lent. Um, it, it broke that down, so the limits were broken down. And once the limits were broken down, we overproduced that too much inventory. But to write this inventory down, as we saw in 2008, so all of a sudden it's a systemic issue. That's how that's how much we produced. Mm-hmm. And therefore, nobody wants to do that. And so, because nobody wants to do that, this is where the bailouts come in. This is where these unfair practices come in. Because once it's existential about the financial health of the system and the people who stand to lose the most money, they obviously try to keep the party going as long as possible. That creates, if you understand how all that came about, you would understand that this creates a sort of a fake appearance of stability which is really maintained strictly by the government subsidies. Right. And it's maintained by zero interest rates, which enable, or very ultra-low interest rates, which enable 
concurrent service of enormous amounts of debts. So, for example, the United States had $1 trillion deficit in 1982. It now has $16 trillion deficit. It's an exponential growth. Normally, in nature, exponential growth doesn't sustain itself. But here it has, and the reason is that the interest rates for the same period of time has gone down from 18% to virtually zero. So the United States government, having increased its indebtedness by 16-fold, has only increased its debt service by two-fold. Yeah. And if, in fact, you look at 1998, right now the United States government is paying 11% less in debt service than it did in 1998, except that it has three times as much debt. That's incredible. So, right, so this is, a, this is a mathematical trick. I mean, it's not trick in the sense that it's unreal. It's real. But it's, a, it's a ephemeral in that sense that zero interest rates are probably not sustainable forever. Mm. So anybody who's waiting for rates to go up, I think, is, may, may have to wait a very long time. Well, this is what's called financial repression. Well, indeed, and it's uh, is the mechanism that is being used to, I, I would say, to to destroy capital. Because I did, somebody pointed out recently that eighty percent of American savings uh, are in the hands of fifty fifty five year olds and older, and that in fact, uh, if they're getting zero on their savings now, they have to eat it, eat the seed corn away from all those savings, and it's being uh, being destroyed. So, so we're having a destruction of savings, are we not? In America, we do, and let me let me uh, say something that everybody knows, but I will um, I will bet that most people don't fully uh, appreciate the importance of, and that is, taxation is based on nominal gains and nominal income. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is this: so let's say you're getting I don't know you're lucky to get four percent return on some fixed income security. Sure. In the meantime, inflation. Well, the government says it's 2%. Let's say it is 2%. I think it's more, but let's say it's 2%. So if you're getting a interest income of 4% and the inflation is 2%, you're really getting 2%. Mm. But you're being taxed on 4%. Right. <laughs> so if roughly, you know, state, local taxes, depending on which tax yeah. bracket you're in and so forth, uh, marginally, you pay, you know, almost half of your income in taxes or 40% or something, there's nothing left. This is the outright uh, theft of property of the American citizens through taxation and inflation and so forth. It is immoral. Exactly. So taxation, nominal taxation during periods of debasement or inflation is by its nature expropriatory. It is uh, is, uh, extremely uh, disturbing for those of us who revere capitalism and private property for sure. And I think that most people, people on the left of the political spectrum who sort of champion the the current policies, maybe don't really understand the connection between the loss of property and liberties, do they? Well, this is called, this is a phenomenon that's called uh, normalcy bias. Normalcy bias is a very huge, it's a human thing. It is especially uh, dangerous for uh, societies and people who are highly successful in the past and advanced because they tend to project their very positive and successful experience of the past into the future. Mm-hmm. I mentioned digital photography. I, it, it, we all remember a wonderful company that was called Kodak. <laughs> yeah. That, that, right? So, so that was a company, and, and there was another wonderful company called Polaroid. And there was another wonderful business that used to be called Railroads, uh, you know, that were the most powerful, if you looked at the S&P 5, I mean, whatever, the Dow Jones at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you would see uh, Railroads, probably half of the companies. So time and time and time again. And then, of course, there was a music industry that never realized what uh, MP3s and iTunes were going to do, was going to do to them. Mm-hmm. So how many executive meetings do we think uh, companies like General Motors and Chrysler and Kodak and, and Polaroid and others had discussing the threats of digital photography, Japanese manufacturers, uh, electronic music, and what did they do about it? Nothing, because they didn't realize that this was real. They didn't realize they saw it, but they didn't believe. So when people say seeing is believing, sometimes seeing is not believing. And I called it normalcy bias, and that is the single most grave threat to people's welfare over time. The record of wealth preservation or savings preservation over time is very poor. If you go to Newport, Rhode Island, and you look at the beautiful mansions, you have to ask yourself a question. The mansions are here, but where are the families that built them? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a that good question. Is gone. Yeah. That's uh, a good question. The Great well, Depression, through the inflation of the 70s, it's been completely dissipated. Simon, there's, uh, we're just about out of time here, and I, 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 we barely scratched the surface. I need to ask you, though, um, do you see inflation or deflation as the number one threat? Now, it seems to me, you know, you, insurance companies, for example, pension funds, how are, they going to, how are they going to meet their needs? They have to go out, maybe go out in the stock market at risky things that they shouldn't be involved in. Uh, and it seems to me the systemic risk globally, as you talked about the interconnectedness that's going on, but the systemic risk globally is growing very, very rapidly. Do you think that we could have a crack-up boom kind of a thing and then, and then a, a deflationary depression? Or, or what are, what's, your, how are you, what's your view on this right now? My view on this is this. I do not know, and neither does anybody else. Mm-hmm. Therefore, what my firm has decided to do is we've examined a lot of alternatives to financial assets, and we concluded that physical gold that is owned outside the financial system, that is without the operational and, and counterparty risks of financial instruments and institutions, is really the only liquid viable alternative. There are other flood assets that are good alternatives to financial assets, mm-hmm. but liquid in terms of ability to monetize it and potentially buy cheap things or uh, to sustain yourself during bad times. But physical bullion which is not, not unique, not paintings, not other things that are hard to sell during difficult periods. Bullion kept outside the financial system is probably the best way to protect yourself from either inflationary uh, boom or uh, deflationary bust. Because what happens in both of those situations is that financial assets get destroyed. Now, some people think that inflation is good for stocks. I encourage those people to look at the history of the 1970s uh, and to find out that stocks do not do well during inflation. They may take off because of the asset relocation, reallocation, as you just alluded to. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people start getting afraid, they get out of fixed income into equities. And equities may benefit in the short term. But if you look at what's going on today, you will see that financial instruments, all financial instruments, stocks and otherwise, are valued based on capital asset pricing model, which is discounting future cash flows at a certain discount rate. If you look at stocks, I believe that, well, I don't believe, the discount rate is the lowest it's ever been. Mm-hmm. So the present value is the highest it would be, mathematically. And the cash flows that people are discounting are perverted or inflated through the fact that the government is spending over a trillion dollars on various forms of subsidies that end up as revenues of various companies. So if you posit that the government cannot continue the scheme forever, then you would have to say that the aggregate demand in the economy is being overstated, which is to say revenues of companies are overstated, and the discount rate at which these revenues or these profits are being discounted back to today are understated, which overstates the present value. Right. So I think there's a very significant mispricing across all financial assets. Right. And I think people need to understand that and be, be uh, very careful to not put all, all their eggs in one basket. Now, I'm not recommending that people put all their money in gold. I think that that's an essential form of insurance that people have to own both because it is a physical asset that is an alternative to money and alternative to financial assets. It is very under-owned um, for the same reason, as I said before, normalcy bias. People don't think they need it. Um, and it is something that can protect you and potentially enable you to profit from a debacle by buying cheap assets when they materialize. Right. Simon, uh, we're That's going to we have do. to let it go there. There's so much more to talk to you about, but uh, I, I do appreciate your, your comments there. They, I think they're very apropos. I, I agree with you 100% uh, that you know the markets are very much... Um, uh, they're very much manipulated right now through these, uh, you know, through the through the creation of money, and that the discount rate uh, is much too low. It's, uh, so we do need to be careful. Tell our listeners where they can go to follow your firm, or, or perhaps avail sure. themselves to your service. I believe you're available to accredited investors. We're available only to accredited investors, uh, which is an SEC definition that can be found on the internet. Uh, the firm's name is IDESIS, E I D E S I S, Capital. Uh, com is, uh, is the website. If you Google my name, Simon, uh, Mikhailovich, uh, M-I-K-H-A-I-L-O-V-I-C-H, you will also find our website and feel free to get in touch if you're interested, uh, and be happy to talk about it. 
Thank you very much, Simon. Uh, definitely want to have you back again sometime. We can uh, pursue a lot of these topics in more depth, but thank you very much, folks. Thank you for having away. me, Jay. I'm going to be, uh, Amir Adnani is going to be with us, and uh, he uh, he is certainly a head of a gold company. He's also a head of a uranium uh, mining company in the United States, the first new producer in recent times in the United States. So as soon as we come back from commercial break, we'll talk to Amir Adnani. Don't go away. Be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network investors deserve to start seeing greater returns period creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined fiscally responsible style at dynacore gold mines we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at DynacorGold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Amir Adnani. Amir is the president of uh, one of our sponsors, Brazil Resources, and he's also a president of another company that's been a sponsor, and I expect maybe a sponsor again in the near future. That's Uranium Energy. It's the first uh, company in recent times, at least, that's, uh, that started, well, new producers of uh, uranium in the United States. So uh, welcome, Amir. Good to have you back with me again. Hi, Jay. That's great to be here again. Now, Uranium Energy, uh, you're, uh, you're trading uh, UEC as a symbol, 85 million shares outstanding, around $19 million in cash and, and uh, uranium product on your balance sheet. No debt. Um, you're, you just started producing. How much uranium did you produce last year, and, and what, are your, what is your target for this year, in 2013? Uh, uranium Energy produced uh, just uh, just about 200,000 pounds of uranium last fiscal year for the company, mm-hmm. and uh, our fiscal year is the period ending July 31st. That's how much we actually processed and um, and packaged for sale. And uh, you know, right now the big development with our company this year was the permitting of our second mine in Texas to go into production. That's our Goliad project. 
and we're currently constructing that project. And once that project comes online, we definitely expect that it can at least double our production immediately. And uh, from there, we're looking at uh, increasing and ramping up production from uh, both of our projects, Palangana and Goliad. Uh, over the next couple of years, our goal is to get to about a million pound per year production. And uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, we have a very good-sized processing plant uh, at a facility called Hobson, which is also in South Texas near these mines. And with four other projects in addition to Goliad Palangana near the plant, the goal over the next four or five years is to uh, become uh, a producer in the range of uh, three million pounds per year. Uh, and of course, that's a long-term objective, but you can see so far with the proof of concept that we have with the actual production we've delivered, you can see that the technical capabilities and the operating capabilities are there and the human resources are there uh, for this company to keep executing and, uh, and keep uh, producing more yellow cake. Your, uh, let's talk a little bit about the economics, Samir. Uh, what is it costing you to produce a pound of uranium, and what are you getting for it? Uh, over the last uh, sort of 12 months of uh, mining and selling, I mean, we've reported a cash cost of 18 to $20 per pound, and that cash cost uh, is uh, directly from our cost of goods sold. And so based on... $14 million that we sold uh, in uranium last year, we generated that number, and we sold uranium in the spot market last year at $50 per pound. So we're selling it at 50 or we're selling it at 50 with a reported cash cost between 18 to $20 per pound. So you've got a great margin there that we can work with in what is uh, you know, considered to be a depressed uranium price right now. Currently, the spot price is lower than 50. It stands right now at $44 per pound. So if we were selling uranium right now, we'd be selling it at $44 per pound. And that number, um, again, seems to have uh, found a good support level at that $44 level. So I expect, you know, this is uh, hopefully a bottom for the price of uranium. And uh, based on a number of positive macro developments, I think we'll see higher prices. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about those macro, uh, the macro picture for uranium. Uh, I know that uh, shortly, pretty soon anyway, uh, the Soviet, the, the uranium that was coming from the uh, disassembled nuclear weapons from the Soviet Union, that program is, is due to end pretty soon, is it? That program is due to end uh, towards the end of this year, and as a, as a sign of things to come, and definitely as a sign of what the Russians uh, think about the market, there was a very interesting and positive announcement that the Russian state mining company announced a couple of weeks ago where they're spending over a billion dollars in cash to uh, buy out uh, the interest they didn't own already in Uranium One, which is a mining company primarily with assets in Kazakhstan that uh, the Russians already owned 51% of. So I think that development there and... Uh, uh, the, the move by the Russians to secure and, uh, and have greater control over uranium mining assets mm-hmm. demonstrates that they're also getting ready to become less dependent on secondary supplies or these military inventories that have been a big part of the supply equation over the last 20 years. And I think you also look at um, the big uncertainty in the uranium market being the situation in Japan last month's election where a new prime minister was elected who's very pro-nuclear and now is expected to basically turn the, the, the 40 or so idle reactors in Japan back online, I think will provide a nice boost to the demand side for uranium. And China, of course, which was always the engine of growth and nuclear capacity worldwide, is now driving ahead with issuing new licenses for new reactors. As of end of last year, they, they issued four more new, new nuclear reactor licenses. And so you look at these very positive events lining up, the Chinese continuing to move forward, the political situation in Japan at least resolving itself, and uh, with a pro-nuclear prime minister, Japan will surely turn their reactors back online um, over the months and years to come. And with the Russian situation definitely coming to a head with the, the end of the uh, military treaty and, uh, and Russia itself signaling that they're focusing more on mining, um, I think these are uh, very interesting developments, very positive developments. And, Jay, you've got to keep in mind, at the end of the day, at $44 uranium, 
no one's building new conventional uranium mines, and conventional right. mines are 70% of the supply worldwide. So you also have a price where at this price, only the ISR or Institute recovery project like ours are economic. Those projects are not enough to increase worldwide supply to meet demand. We need hard rock mining projects to be economically viable as well. And a number of research reports that have come out this last year show that we need at least $80 uranium and higher in order to justify or incentivize incentivize mine construction for the hard rock producers. So that's why, you know, someone like myself would have this, this confidence in believing that we need to see higher prices because the economics of new mining and new mines at these levels just don't work. Well, Amir, you know, a lot of people think when they think uh, uranium, they think about uh, not in my backyard. I don't want that thing there. Uh, explain to our listeners that your process is not hard rock mining, and it, it, it brings with it a lot less, uh, a lot fewer issues and a lot less capital expense than uh, than conventional mining, right? Uh, well, exactly. And, you know, the Institute recovery process, uh, first of all, has been around for over 30 years. And so it's a process that over 30 years has definitely uh, uh, been perfected and, uh, and, and become uh, widely used internationally, where today, as I mentioned, about uh, 30% of global production in the U.S. and Central Asia and Australia is by way of this method. Uh, this method does not have all the expensive and uh, and, and and perhaps uh, involved uh, earth-moving equipment that you need in conventional mining, which uh, tends to be higher cost and higher upfront capitals, uh, capital is required. With institute recovery, we're targeting um, sandstone-hosted uh, uranium deposits that could be soluble in the presence of uh, ura- basically oxygenated water, so a bicarbonate that is very environmentally benign. We don't need to excavate. We don't need to dig a pit. We don't need to explode anything. We don't need to, again, have that big footprint. And uh, because the regulatory system has had a chance to really understand this process for over 30 years, there's also a lot of safeguards and a very stringent regulatory environment in place uh, that uh, definitely gives uh, stakeholders the confidence that, you know, we're not uh, experimenting with something new and this is a a proven technique where, uh, where again, the regulatory environment has been has been very well developed around it. So, uh, it's uh, it's definitely uh, the the lowest cost way of mining uranium, and it's environmentally friendly in the sense that you don't have a big surface disturbance uh, when you utilize this method. The limitation is geology. I mean, you either have the right geology or you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, in South Texas, the South Texas uranium belt has the right geology for this type of mining. Uh, and uh, in other parts of the world where this type of mining is taking place, again, the geology is available and it's there. And, uh, of course, as you know, you can't uh, you know, change Mother Nature. It is what it is. Exactly. So, well, uh, you've got 18 to $20 cash cost right now. Let's say that uh, the market has to move up to $80 to, uh, to attract the, the hard rock mining uh, sector to, to bring on the uh, uranium that's necessary. Uh, what about your your leach projects? Because I think that's only what you're doing, right? It's only the the in situ leach process that you're using. Uh, do you think that your cost will remain similar, or is this uh, hard too hard to tell yet? Uh, you know, right now we're uh, very operational, and of course, investing a lot of money and growing our Texas operations, which are all in situ recovery projects, and um, and we have a good sense of how that's going to come along, and we feel that we'll, that we'll definitely remain a low-cost producer with those assets. Mm-hmm. Outside of Texas, we've acquired properties uh, in Paraguay in South America where the geology is very similar to the geology in Texas. It's ISR amenable. Uh, projects are not as advanced as our projects in Texas, but we know that as we move along and as we demonstrate through metallurgy development and permitting work, uh, the economics around those projects that uh, the fact that their ISR amenable will make them uh, very competitive on economics. So we're developing uh, uh, these uh, Texas lookalike projects in Paraguay. But in the U.S., outside of Texas, we also have holdings in uh, five other U.S. states. Uh, we have very large uranium holdings in the state of Arizona, but uh, both our Arizona holdings and Colorado holdings are hard rock projects 
Uh, at this point, we haven't completed any economic studies on these projects, but we have um, just a substantial amount of economic and sorry, uh, historic exploration and economic data, which would have to be upgraded. Uh-huh. Um, uh, these are projects that were developed, in some cases, produced from by major mining and energy companies in the 1960s through to the 1980s during the last uh, run in the uranium market. And today we control, I think, fantastic optionality and a great portfolio in those projects. Uh, but that's really an optionality that investors get when they invest in our company. The real meat and potato of the company is Texas and our producing assets there. Well, you certainly do have uh, those hard rock assets. We might be looking for someone else possibly uh, that is a hard rock miner to come in and do those and, and option those out. Is that one of the strategies possibly? It's definitely one of the possibilities. In the past, in the history of our company, we've and even in the past have shown the ability to divest of assets that we have. Uh, you know, in the past, we've mm-hmm. divested of hard hard rock assets in the U.S. for you know very attractive sums of cash, and has been a way for us to demonstrate the ability to monetize properties, add capital to the balance sheet without dilution to shareholders, and and grow the company. So there's definitely value to be unlocked in our extensive project portfolio outside of Texas. When and how we do that will obviously be driven by the price of uranium, and as the price of uranium um, at some point here turns and moves up, uh, it gives us more flexibility and more options around how we develop our uh, sort of non-Texas portfolio. But I think more than anything, it's attractive that a company has those uh, cards to play and those, those projects to work with, and with UEC, you definitely see that this is not a you know, one-trick pony. The company is very well diversified. Even in Texas, where we're producing, we're producing from, you know, we'll be producing by the end of this year from two assets with four more to be developed. Right. Uh, over 20 other projects in five other U.S. states, and then the two concessions we have in Paraguay. So you've got a very diversified portfolio across institute situ recovery and hard rock. And, Jay, you know, we're one of only you know, eight or nine companies worldwide that are actually mining uranium. I mean, that's right. the issue is you have a real scarcity of producers, guys that right. can actually pull this stuff out of the ground, yeah. do it at a viable cost. And so not only are we a member of a very exclusive club, you know, the club of uranium producers, uh, but amongst that group, uh, we're one of the lowest cost producers of that group, and I'd say probably the only one that has a debt-free balance sheet in the current environment where there's still a lot of concerns out there about the volatilities in the financial market and the ups and downs of the mining sector. Absolutely. I think a debt-free balance sheet uh, definitely positions this company favorably. Well, it certainly does. Amir, we're out of time, but tell our listeners where, what's your website so they can follow the, the company's progress. Our website is www.uraniumenergy.com, uraniumenergy.com, all one word. The company is listed on the NYC market uh, with the ticker UEC for Uranium Energy Corp. Uh, and uh, that's the key information for you. Very good. Thank you very much, Amir. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll look forward to following your company going forward. Folks, thank don't you, go away. I'm going to be right back with some uh, a summary of today's show and also a word about next week's uh, guest. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. 
At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, well, we did have a, a, a very much a gold-focused discussion today, uh, starting out with uh, Jisper Gunnenwagen uh, and, uh, and also Brian London, of course. Both of those gentlemen are very much involved in the gold markets. Uh, Jisper um, is really, I think, hitting... I mean, both of these gentlemen understand or believe very firmly uh, that the emperor is wearing no clothes in, in the sense that uh, uh, the U.S. probably doesn't have the gold it pretends to have. It doesn't have it in its possession because it's leased out to suppress the gold price. The gold antitrust action people have been talking about this for a long time. And I would uh, suggest that those of you who are not familiar with GATA, go to GATA.org and learn as much as you can about this. Um, now, it's not something you're going to hear about on CNBC because uh, they are part of the cabal that is really arranging the manipulation, uh, the picking of the pockets of the middle class, money that is being, wealth that is being taken from the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, people that actually do things for the rest of us. It is pernicious. It was created. Our founders of this country understood it. They understood that if you, you can rob people, you can steal from them. The government, in essence, is robbing the American public as uh, as we uh, as Simon was saying, uh, you know, through inflation and through taxation, and so you're taxed on the nominal value. Uh, and if the inflation is eating away that nominal value, it doesn't matter. You're still taxed on the nominal value, so you're left even, you know, you're left with nothing uh, essentially. And this is this is a, a gross injustice. It is uh, immoral. It's ha- it's what's happening. But we have an American public that is asleep at the switch. Um, they don't seem to care that this is happening. It is what it is. So uh, realizing that we cannot necessarily change the world ourselves, we have to vote with our – we have to try to recognize what's going on. We vote with our pocketbooks. Uh, but most of all, I think th- that uh, it was Simon that said we've got to try to protect our family and our loved ones as best we can. Uh, this whole notion that – Property, property rights. I mean, there's nothing more biblical, and there's nothing more. Uh, well, there's. I mean, a sin is a sin, but this theft is really what government is involved with, and our founders understood that, and that's why, in the Constitution, our money is supposed to be comprised of gold and silver because they understood how governments can rob the citizens, and our founders staged a revolution in 1776 because they saw that the king. Uh, was stealing from them. He was taking their property through taxes. Well, we have a more pernicious, I think the most pernicious tax is inflation, which Ron Paul points out uh, from time to time. Anyway, I really enjoyed our discussion with Jispert, uh, with Brian London, with Simon Mikhailovich. Uh, I think all three gentlemen have an awful lot of understanding of what's really going on uh, in these markets. Amir Adnani, also an excellent CEO, who I think you want to keep your eye on Amir, uh, labeled as one of the outstanding CEOs, uh, upcoming CEOs by Doug Casey and his organization, uh, doing very well. So you want to, a lot of times, invest. I think you always want to invest with good management, and Amir, I think, fits that category. So I've really enjoyed today's show. Next week should be also a very interesting show with Jim Garrow, Dr. Jim Garrow, 
who says that the Obama administration, uh, the Obama administration is really uh, trying to get rid of military leaders who will not fire on American citizens if ordered to do so. Very scary idea, and some people think that this uh, Dr. Jim Garrell may be a little Looney Tunes. Well, I don't know if he is or not, but we're going to talk to him and try to explore his views on that. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, for making uh, and Matt Widener for making the show logistically possible, and our sponsors for making it economically viable. And until next week, um, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.